Matthew chapter number 20 um, this morning. And uh, as we go into this passage, um, I, I was wrestling with and wrestling with and wrestling with a title. Usually titles for the messages, um, and it doesn't take me very long for the title part of the message. I usually do it last after I've studied and kind of developed the message. And I know where I'm going with the text. I can follow um, the patterns of thought. And so then I usually do that on the very end. And um, as I was finishing it, I'm like, man, like, what do I even entitle this passage? Uh, what do I even, how do I even come up with something that, that kind of describes what's happening here? Uh, and I kind of landed on this phrase, how dare he be generous? You say, that's kind of a weird uh, way of thinking, right? Because normally when we think of generosity, we think of generosity as being, um, just help me out here, January 1st, I know a lot of you guys were up late uh, watching football or watching the ball drop or playing uh, VR headsets or whatever. Um, there's a very specific uh, demographic for that one. Uh, but listen, you, you'd say, okay, wait a second, generosity, positive thing or negative thing? So how many of you in here would say generosity, that's a negative thing, generosity negative? Oh, wow, no one. <laughs> so generosity, we would say, is a positive trait, right? Everyone, generosity, yes. I see heads nodding, couple hands, all right, we're waking up. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this. We do have coffee available in the mornings when you come in here. <laughs> Days like today, uh, it'll be a saving grace for some of us. So listen, how dare he be generous? It doesn't make any sense. Why would someone be upset about the generosity of someone else? Well, here we're going to find an instance where Jesus is actually dealing with and addressing some of this behavior. Uh, and if you remember, um, this is many weeks ago, at the end of chapter number 19, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and uh, this is immediately after the man that we call the rich young ruler had come to Jesus, and Jesus had said, take all your things, sell them, and then come and be a part of what we're doing, follow me after you've done all these things. And, and he says, hey, I can't do that. Um, and then all of these things are transpiring. Um, Peter looks at Jesus in verse 27 and says, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus speaks in verse number 28 of chapter 19, saying in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. And so he's speaking to this group and he's speaking um, in this, uh, this, to this rich young ruler. And now the disciples are curious about all of these things. And then as we come into chapter number 20, there's a continuation of thought that Jesus brings. And so um, if you've been around long enough, you know that um, I can be critical of chapter breaks. Um, the chapter breaks were not originally in the Bible, and sometimes they're just in the worst spots. This is one of those instances where this belongs with the previous passage. Uh, watch what happens here. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, before we dig into exactly what this means, um, I know we have a number of parents in this room. Um, and there are many phases of parenting that can be frustrating, right? Um, all the way from the early not sleeping through the night phases. Um, those can be, can we just be honest with each other? Those can be frustrating. 
Um, we are human beings, and we can be a little testy and temperamental when we're sleeping for three hours at a time. Um, that's, that's how that phase of life can tend to operate. Um, as I get a little bit older, we're dealing with the, I don't want to go to bed, and then we're dealing with potty training, and we're dealing with different things. As they age, those problems don't go away. They just change, right? Uh, many of you have grown children in here, and you're never frustrated with your grown children, right? Yeah, we're not going to show hands. Uh, we, got, we have parents in the room, all right? Um, I, see, I, see, I see you guys glancing around to see your parents, all right? We're not going to show hands. Um, we don't want to cause any unnecessary friction <laughs> on New Year's Day. So listen, one of the most frustrating uh, phases that my kids have gone through, and your kids probably have too, was the that's not fair phase. Anyone else been there where your kids learned the phrase, that's not fair? Especially if they have siblings, they want everything to be fair. And everybody wants to go first. And you say, but only one person's doing this. But I want to be the first one. And it's like, oh my goodness, can you just stop for a minute? Sometimes things are not going to be fair. But when they learn this phrase, ah, oh, that's not fair, it's just, it, as a parent, it, it's just kind of infuriating <laughs> if you ever work with kids and it's like, oh, well, they got to turn the lights off last time. And you're like, I'm just going to turn the lights off. It's just not worth it. <laughs> it is, what are you doing? But at the same time, as we're frustrated by this, I, I don't think we ever actually unlearn that. In fact, we continue to go through life saying, that's not fair, don't we? Um, if you are a sports fan, you experience, I had conversations with some of you this morning where uh, the sentiment that came out was, that's not fair. Um, maybe you were in line at the, uh, at the restaurant and you were waiting to be seated and someone else got seated before you and you say, wait a second, I was here first. That's not fair. Maybe someone cuts you off in traffic. I was supposed to make that light, and now I'm sitting here for another 25 seconds. How dare they? That's not fair. We all desire fairness. And there's nothing inherently wrong with fairness. Uh, we're not saying fairness is sinfulness or wrong, but part of maturing is learning that fairness is not something that should be expected in life. And so as we begin this parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a master of a house who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Um, and this is not a, a one-off theme in the book of Matthew, uh, that God, the master of the vineyard, is desiring laborers for his harvest. This is something that's recurring within the book of Matthew. If you remember back several chapters, Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful. Um, it is not too great, but neither is it too lean. But the problem with the harvest that Jesus speaks of is what? He says the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And so very early, this master gets up and goes to find laborers. 
And as we understand this in connection with the previous uh, parable where Jesus teaches, the previous teaching that Jesus gives us about laborers, we understand the harvest are people that God is desiring to reach with the gospel. And so there's a, a call for these laborers to go out and to go into the harvest. And so we see once again within the book of Matthew, the master calling laborers. And when does he go out to call laborers? Well, let's look at verse number two. Oh, well, verse number one actually tells us he went out early in the morning. Um, this is kind of what that equates to in our uh, vernacular today. Um, they did not have clocks like you and I have in the same sense. Um, but the way that the schedule would work throughout the day is that you would have um, the, the beginning of the day would start around sunrise. And then about an hour from sunrise was considered the first hour. Then the second hour, third hour, et cetera, et cetera, through the 12th hour. After the 12th hour began the period of nighttime, and then, which was broken up often into four periods known as watches, each being three hours long. And so the first watch would be the first three hours, second watch, third, fourth, back to the next day, making up 24 hours. And so generally, when you read through the Bible, that's the way that time is kind of broken down. And so just for ease of understanding, we could estimate this to be about 6 a.m., and so Jesus here says this master gets up early. And so again, in our minds, if you want to think through a literal time, give or take about six o'clock in the morning, he gets up and he goes out looking for laborers. Um, now, this is not um, the way this is not the same job market or job culture there's today. These are day laborers. There are still many cultures in the world today that utilize day laborers, and that's what would happen in these seasons, to where there'd be one or two permanent members of the staff or permanent members of the team, but many of them would be hired for a day, paid a day's wage, and they would go home at the next day, hoping for work again the next day. So these individuals that the master is going out for are desiring work. They need work to be able to feed their families. They don't have a steady job. They need that day's work and that day's pay. And so the master goes out after agreeing with the laborers, verse 2, for a denarius a day. This is a typical day's wage for a working man, um, a denarius. He sent them into his vineyard. And so he goes, he finds these men. He agrees with them on a set wage. He says, I'll give you a fair day's wage for a day's uh, work. Go into the vineyard and go. This is my vineyard. Go work here. And then as a few hours progress into the day, about the third hour, uh, this master looks around and he sees others standing idle in the marketplace. So he sees others, and he sees what? Potential laborers. He goes into the marketplace. It's three hours later, so we can say about 9 o'clock. And he goes to them, and he says, hey, what are you guys up to? Uh, he says, you go into the vineyard too. Whatever is right, I will give you. So does he promise them any specific wage in this verse? He doesn't say, I'll give you a full day's wage, but he says, whatever is right, I will give to you. And so these laborers then at the third hour go into the vineyard as well. Verse number five, they went going out again about the same, uh, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And so tw uh, 12 o'clock noon comes around three o'clock in the afternoon comes around and he goes around and he does the same thing. And he says, whatever's fair, I'll pay you. Whatever's fair, I'll pay you. And then even verse number six, watch this. About the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? 
He says, why are you guys, what are you guys still standing around for? It's the 11th hour. It's the end of the day. Uh, what are you guys doing? They said, verse 7, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And so we see the master going around and God calling all of these men to go and work into his vineyard. Over and over and over again, he says, uh, it's right. Whatever is right, I will pay you. Uh, now, watch this. Verse 8. Evening comes. So the dark is coming. No man can work. The evening's coming. Owner of the vineyard says to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages. Begin with the last, so the 11th hour guys, up to the first. And when those hired at the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. How much is a denarius? That's a day's pay. How long did these men work? An hour. And they received a day's pay. Now we can have one of two reactions here, and we're going to kind of press into both of them. We can have, action, we have a reaction and say, wow, that was generous of that master. Or we can have the reaction that says, anyone want to guess? That's not fair. Let, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this church now that we're waking up a little bit. Was that fair? I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I hear yeses, I hear noes. I mean, if you want to go by like textbook definition, fair? Probably not fair, but it was generous. <laughs> and so as we go into this, what was the promise that the master had made? The master made the promise. He said, I will pay you what is right. I want you to understand that when God gives, God gives generously. God gives generously. Now, we keep this in balance, and we understand this also in context with what we just read, where he says, hey, listen, if you left houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, and hey, there is a cost to following after Jesus, but at the same time, God gives generously. Now, does that mean that there are never difficult days? Does that mean that uh, you never lose a job or people you love are never sick or that? No, that's not what it means at all. We're going to get to exactly what this means here in a few minutes. But I want you to keep this in the back of your mind. God gives generously. We could say it this way. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. There's not a day that goes by that God is not good. It doesn't matter if you're on the mountaintops. Is God good on the mountaintops? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is God good in the valleys? Yes. Yes. Is God good everywhere in between? Yes. God's good. There's not a day that you can look at on the calendar and say, God was not good to me on this day. Doesn't matter. Birth of your child. God good? Absolutely. Death of that child. Is God good? Absolutely. Some days it's easier for us to grab onto and feel and recognize, but that doesn't change the goodness of God. But when God gives, understand this, God gives generously. God gives generously. And we're going to press into that here in just a moment, what it means that he gives generously. So at the end of the day, we have this time of reconciliation. He calls these men through. And then he goes on. So the 11th hour men, they receive a full day's wage, if you can believe that. 
And then watch verse number 10. Now when those, I'm sorry, um, when the evening came, verse 11, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them the wages, being of the last to the first. When they hired at the 11th hour came, each received a Daenerys. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Why did they think they would receive more? They worked more, right? And so, what happens? Each of them also received a denarius, a day's pay. And on receiving it, they were grateful that they were able to go home and feed their families. And have provided a full day's work for a full day's pay. <laughs> no. We wouldn't have a bunch of a parable if that were the case, would we? <laughs> receiving it, what did they do? They grumbled at the master of the house. Saying, these last work only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. And so they come, and they, they begin to complain. Can you just imagine as these guys who have worked all day? And here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing for me. is As I'm sitting here reading this story, I'm thinking, the guys who had worked only an hour are also the first to leave, right? And so you've been here all day, and you're watching everybody else get paid, and you're like, oh, come on, I just want to go home. I'm tired. I've been out in the sun. Come on, just let me go home. <laughs> but these guys, what do they do? They watch the 11th hour guys. They watch the 9th hour guys. They watch the 6th hour guys. They watch the 3rd hour guys. All of them receive a day's pay. All of them receive this amount. We really only know about the first of them, so we're kind of making an assumption that all of them are receiving the same amount. And then finally, this... These last men who had been hired 6 a.m. We had to get up before the sun. And we don't have alarm clocks. And we had to get up before the sun. We had to wake ourselves up and get out and get ready. And be there and present before the sun was even up to get, a, to get work. And understand this culture of a day laborer. You don't get hired that day. You don't get paid that day. You know what happens when you don't get paid that day? Some days you don't eat. This isn't a culture where they have uh, much savings and they have all this liquid assets and they're living. No, this is their paycheck to paycheck. They're being, in fact, their paycheck to paycheck is day to day. Every day they're being given their pay. Because waiting two weeks for a paycheck ain't happening. I need it now. I got family to feed. On the way home, I'm going to go by the market. And I'm going to buy bread for tomorrow. Maybe even dinner tonight. And so they need these funds. And so they get up early so that they can go and earn this wage. And, and then what happens? These other men come in at the 11th hour. How dare they? How dare they? But here's what I want you to catch as we're reading through this. There are no second-class members of God's kingdom. There are no second-class members of God's kingdom. Some of you in this room, you grew up in a Christian home. You trusted Christ at a young age. And can I say this? Praise God. Praise God that there are a number of you in here with godly moms and dads that loved you enough to have you in church. It may not have been a church like ours, but they loved you enough to, to make sure that you were around teaching from the Bible. Praise God. Praise God for that, sincerely. Praise God. There are some of you in this room that you didn't come to Christ until you were an adult. Maybe you were in your 20s or your 30s. 
We have people uh, in our church that have been baptized um, that were in their 60s. Praise God. Praise God. There's no such thing as a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And can I say this? God doesn't have favorite children. I mean, you shouldn't either. Every once in a while, I'll joke with my wife. I'll like lean over to her and be like, so-and-so is my favorite. She's like, stop it. I don't say loud enough for them to even hear it. Okay. Uh, but, she, <laughs> but it just drives her up a wall. Because you shouldn't have favorite kids, right? God doesn't. God doesn't. And there's no such thing as a second-class child in the family of God. That's not how it works. And so there are these that come in at the 11th hour. There are these that come in before the first hour even begins. He gives them their wage. It's the same wage. Um, I once heard a story of a Presbyterian man who recently passed and had gone to heaven. Peter met him at the gate, and they began to tour the kingdom. And to this Presbyterian man's surprise, uh, heaven was divided by denomination. And so Peter begins to show him through, and he says, I'll take you to the other Presbyterians. You'll get along well there. And he walks by, he says, these are the Lutherans over here. Um, This section that you see right here, these are the Methodists. Uh, Please be very quiet as we go through this next section. And as they came out the other side of the next section, Peter said, what was that about? Why do I have to be so quiet here? And Peter looked at him and said, those are the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. Obviously, that's not true. That's not how things work. But man, sometimes we like to believe that the way that we behave is the way that it belongs. Now, listen, we want to follow the Bible. We want to do what the Bible says. This is our faith and practice. This is our guidebook. This is the way that we live our lives. This is what we believe. And we go to the scripture. We go to the scripture. We go to the scripture. Uh, In fact, in the Reformation, they would say sola scriptura, meaning this, in scripture alone. There's no other authority. This is where God speaks to us. And even as we come into the New Testament, Paul would make similar statements where he would, he would praise the Bereans in the book of Acts. Uh, Luke would write, he praised the Bereans and said, man, the Bereans, they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they would search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they would go and they would open up the Bible and see if it lined up with the teachings that they were receiving from Paul and from Peter and from the other disciples. They would say, okay, is this in line with what, what the scripture teaches? And at this time they only have the Old Testament, but they're fact checking them. Praise God. And so what we see as we go into this is that uh, from this parable, there are not second-class members of God's kingdom. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with the idea of fairness or seniority. But in God's kingdom, those things don't exist. Because just a few verses before, verse 30 of chapter 19, many who are first will be last in the last first. There are many that they're going to say, listen, I've been, oh, I did this and I did that. And I was a part of the church for this long. And I was, I was baptized as a kid. And I, I spent my whole life doing these things. And then uh, I retired and I continued to in God. Why? And he said, listen, the first will be last. The last will be first. Praise God for that heritage. But we can't allow ourselves to slide by or to to, uh, just glide because of victories of the past. God has still called us to continue to follow after him. 
And these individuals, they are complaining and they come for their pay. But the master has been generous to all of those that have gone before. And then what is his response to all of this? As they come to Jesus, or they come to the master, excuse me, verse 12, and they say, we, they worked only one hour, we worked all day. Verse 13, he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. And so the master is generous. They've agreed on a day's wage. But then they look at these others and they say, if they get a day's wage, surely we've done more than they did. So shouldn't we receive more? And yet they receive the same. If the master had never, think about it this way. If the master had never hired those other individuals, would these first that were hired complain? Would the first that were hired complain if the master never went out and hired other individuals? Now, the master went out and hired, did more work get done or less work get done? As a whole, more work or less work? More work. More was accomplished. And so the master said, great, more of the work necessary in my vineyard was done. And he was happy with that result. But these that had come first and that had agreed to a day's wage were now upset, even though they would never have been upset if the other laborers weren't hired. They wouldn't have dared to complain. Can you believe that guy? He only paid us a day's wage for a day's work. Imagine going and explaining that to your friends, right? Ah, the nerve of him. He only paid me fairly. What's wrong with these people? But it's as if they came to believe that the master's vineyard was their own. Isn't it? It was as if they came to believe the master's vineyard belonged to them. They said, this is my, uh, I'm, I'm deserving of these because you paid them this. It's fair if you pay me this. But at the end of the day, it belonged to the master. And what we find is that these individuals are immature as they criticize the generosity of others. We see that their words and their actions, they flow from a jealous heart. But this jealousy begins when they begin to compare themselves with others. Comparison is a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. And in fact, comparison is the enemy of contentment. Paul tells us, as he writes to the Philippians, uh, he says that he's learned to be content in any circumstance. But we struggle with contentment often, don't we? But why do we struggle with contentment? Can I tell you its greatest enemy? It's comparison. Saying that person has and I want. I want this thing. I want the, the family, the job. The, the friends, the house, the whatever it might be. I want that thing. And comparison erodes away at our contentment. It strangles it. it. It crushes it. I want this thing that someone else has. 
The envy and jealousy begins to well up in our heart. The biblical term for it, if you want to go back to Exodus and the Ten Commandments, is this, coveting. Where we begin to allow what we want to consume us. But how do we even know those things exist? Well, we begin to look at others and say, mm, it would be nice if I could retire when they retired. Man, it could be nice if I only had to work the hours that they work. Well, it could be nice if I could work from home, or I could do this, or my kids were able to go to that school, or whatever the thing may be. But where does that erupt from? When we begin to compare ourselves to other people. It'll destroy your contentment. It'll destroy your contentment. And in the day and age that we live in, we have a difficult time being content, don't we? Which is incredible, because we have so much convenience where today, whatever kind of food you want, you can leave this building and you can go get, I shouldn't use a food analogy, should I, this close to lunch? Too late, it's done. You can leave this building and you can get whatever you want, right? Uh, you can go home and you can turn on whatever you want. Actually, you don't even have to go home. You could probably watch it while you're going home. Please don't, especially if you're driving. But man, you can, you, we have so much accessibility, so much at our fingertips, just the world that we live in. It's, it's incredible that we have all of these things, and yet we're less content than we've ever been. Why? Because we're always looking at the things that everyone else has. And you will never be content when you're looking at all of everybody else's things. When you're, when you're comparing yourselves to others, you will never be content. Never. You will never be content. You'll find someone else who has one thing that you want, and you'll want it. You don't know what they're enduring. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know what they're not content about. And that's how we end up looking at each other and you say, oh, well, I want the thing you have. And, and, and we say, oh, I want the thing you have. And, and we begin to be jealous of one another and we begin to lose our contentment with the things that God has placed in our lives. But the fact is, is that at the end of the day, God is generous and God is good. God is generous and God is good. And the fact is, is that even as God calls us into his kingdom, he doesn't tell us that the angels rejoice over the potential or the age of the individual who comes into the kingdom, does he? He says the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. And the fact is, is even as we begin this new year today, God can save you even if you think you're last. Even if you look at your life and you say, oh man, I'm, I'm that 11th hour. I spent so many of my years wishing away or doing what I wanted to do and, and I wasn't working for Christ. I wasn't serving God. The fact is, is that uh, God still can save you and God still can use you and God still can move in your heart and, and accomplish things through you. And even as we look at this passage, it's connected directly with verse number 17 which we'll push into more next week, but I want you to see this. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside on the way, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. We want to look at God's generosity. This is the ultimate picture, the ultimate gift of God's generosity. It's called the gospel. 
The gospel is the greatest demonstration of the generosity of God. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Who is deserving of the gospel? Who's deserving of the gospel? No one. No one. God doesn't owe the gospel to anybody. Not to you, not to me. And yet, even though you and I have sinned and done wrong and, and gone away from God, God sent his son, Jesus, to come. And what does he say? He says, I'm going to be delivered over to these wicked men. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to shed my blood. I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And you know what Jesus could have said as he was speaking of this to his disciples? You know what he could have said in truth in this moment? It's not fair. Because <laughs> you know what's not fair? The perfect sinless son of God suffering and dying for sinners. That's not fair. You know what's not fair is you and I having his righteousness. That's not fair. And the fact is, is that fairness in these instances would bring about our condemnation. And yet Jesus Christ steps into the picture. He says, the condemnation that they deserve, I'm going to take. I don't deserve it, but I'm going to carry it anyways so that they can be forgiven for their sins. You and I. And that when we put our faith in Jesus, we can be saved from condemnation, from separation from God, from hell that we deserve. That would be fair. That would be fair. Romans chapter 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. And the book of Revelation comes around and says, oh yeah, by the way, death and hell are cast into the lake of fire. That's what we deserve. That's fair. But the gospel, can I tell you this? The gospel is unfair. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because the gospel is not fair. The gospel is generous. It's generous. And it's the demonstration of God's generosity. As he sent his son, emptying heaven's greatest treasure upon you and me who are undeserving of any of it. So today, as we move towards a time that we call our invitation, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to the generosity of God this morning. Maybe you're in this room today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior. What a great way to start the new year, wouldn't it be? If that's you today and you hear these words, you hear this message and you say, I want to put my faith in Jesus. Amen. What a great way to begin. Maybe you're in this room today, and you're wondering, is God good? Is God good? I put my faith in him, but man, there are just days that are hard, and it doesn't feel like God is good. Hey, let's remember the generosity he's demonstrated to us through the gospel of his son, Jesus.